today we have uh, as our guest Heather DeRoche, PhD, and she's coming to us from the beautiful city of, of Vancouver um, at the UBC. Um, she's in the laboratory of Dr. Ver, uh, Bruce Vercheri, uh, sorry, and she's an honorary research associate at UBC. Uh, she recently joined a Vancouver biotech startup, which I believe uh, integrated nanotherapeutics, which um, I believe has a lot of buzz around it and it's uh, kind of exciting and maybe at a future um, talk, we'll discuss that. Um, uh, and she's there uh, as the director of preclinical development. She did her PhD at the University of British Columbia in Dr. Tim Kiefer's lab. Um, he's a well-known um, type 1 diabetes uh, researcher and has contributed a lot to the field. And she recently completed her postdoctoral fellowship in Dr. Bruce Vercher's lab, um, also another uh, giant in the field at BC Children's Hospital Research Institute. Today's discussion is gonna talk about her GADRF-funded postdoctoral research on the crosstalk between beta cells and the immune system. So welcome, Heather, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much, Monica. It's a pleasure to be here and I will be discussing the postdoctoral work I did in Bruce Verscher's lab uh, and really about this uh, pathology called islet amyloid that we have been interested in for a very long time and how this impacts the immune system and what this means for beta cells. Um, so what is islet amyloid? It was discovered at the turn of the 20th century, it's shown here in this hand drawing uh, from this paper in 1901, as this large sort of plaque structure that was found within pancreatic islets and really disrupting the architecture of these islets. And we now know that islet amyloid is a pathology commonly associated with type 2 diabetes, actually. So you can see it here fluorescing in green in the islet, uh, in a type 2 diabetic islet. And it's really disrupting the architecture and also associated with a loss of the beta cells within the islet, which here are fluorescing in red. And this is in contrast to in the absence of diabetes, there's really no amyloid present. Now, I'm going to be talking a little bit about type 2 diabetes. Don't worry, I know this is a type 1 diabetes talk. Trust me, I will take us back there. But this is where all of our knowledge of islet amyloid really started from, was, was specifically in type 2 diabetes. So islet amyloid is actually formed, its major constituent is a protein called IAPP, or islet amyloid polypeptide. This is actually co-secreted from the beta cell itself, along with insulin. And so IPP has important actions as a hormone, but for some reason that we don't fully understand in diabetes, the IPP protein becomes misfolded. It initially forms these soluble aggregates and then elongated fibrils and eventually lays down as the, islet, the amyloid deposits that you see in the islets in these pictures. And so about just over a decade ago, Bruce Verscher's lab, as well as the laboratory of Luke O'Neill, really uh, discovered that islet amyloid and IPP aggregates are highly pro-inflammatory molecules. So this is just a snapshot of an experiment done by a past grad student in Bruce Verscher's lab before I joined the lab, showing that when she took human IPP, so synthetic IPP in vitro, and incubated it with bone marrow-derived macrophages, the macrophages started pumping out a whole lot of the pro-inflammatory cytokine IL-1-beta, shown here. This is in contrast to when macrophages were exposed to a non-aggregating form of IPP, that is rodent IPP. 
So it's really this aggregating form of IPP that is this highly pro-inflammatory molecule. And so rodent IPP does not form amyloid because there are differences in key amino acids that prevent its aggregation. And so to study islet amyloid in mice, we use mice that express the human form of IPP transgenically in their beta cells. This results in a lots of islet amyloid kind of resembling that type two diabetic islet that I showed you previously. Uh, whereas wild type mice don't develop any islet amyloid at all. And what we and others uh, discovered and established over the last few years was that islet amyloid is really a key driver of islet inflammation. So here I'm showing you two experiments from two independent groups, ours and Steve Kahn's in Seattle. And this is looking at RNA expression uh, in whole islets in mice. And there's a whole bunch of different pro-inflammatory cytokines that are measured along the x-axis. So there's a lot going on here. What I want you to take away from this is that there's really only one situation where we see really high levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines within the islets. And that is whenever the mice have lots of islet amyloid present. So even mice that are on a high fat diet or have some sort of genetic obesity, there's really nothing going on in terms of their islet inflammation. It's really only when that islet amyloid is present that then the pro-inflammatory cytokines and the markers of inflammation really jump up. Similarly, in human type two diabetes, it's really only the islets that have amyloid present shown here as DA plus, so amyloid positive islets. These are the only islets that actually have an appreciable accumulation of macrophages within their islets, as opposed to islets in the same donors who do uh, the islets that don't have any amyloid also don't really have any appreciable macro macrophage accumulation. So really establishing that islet amyloid is this very inflammatory molecule and a, a key to islet inflammation, we think. And so this islet amyloid induced inflammation is a strong driver of beta cell dysfunction. So these are data from our lab where we've looked at glucose tolerance in mice that express human IPP. So you can see in the red line, mice that express human IPP have dramatically impaired glucose tolerance compared to wild type mice, because again, wild type mice do not develop islet amyloid. But interestingly, if we break the inflammation, even though islet amyloid is still present, we can dramatically improve beta cell function. And so this was demonstrated here where mice were treated with IL-1 receptor antagonists to block IL-1 beta signaling. You can see that the glucose tolerance is dramatically improved. Similarly, in human IPP transgenic mice, if we delete macrophages with clodronate loaded liposomes, again, we see a dramatic improvement in their glucose uh, tolerance. And some of my uh, earlier work as a postdoc looked at the role of the NLRP3 inflammasome. So this is an enzyme complex that is responsible for IL-1 beta secretion from macrophages. We generated human IPP transgenic mice with and without the NLRP3 inflammasome. So again, in purple, you can see that these mice with islet amyloid and an intact inflammasome have very impaired glucose tolerance. This is dramatically reversed by deleting the NLRP3 inflammasome and getting rid of macrophages' ability to secrete IL-1 beta. This goes hand in hand with increased insulin secretion from the beta cells 
and increased markers of beta cell function and maturity shown here, even after long-term high-fat diet. So altogether, this what we believe is happening is that there's this vicious feed-forward cycle between the beta cell and the islet macrophage involving islet amyloid. So IPP itself is secreted from the beta cell within the islet. It forms aggregates in certain circumstances. And when this happens, islet macrophages sense this and secrete high local levels of IL-1 beta in response. This then acts on the beta cell. It shuts down insulin secretion and with chronic high levels of IL-1 beta also can induce beta cell death. And unfortunately for the beta cell, this actually beta cell dysfunction can also start driving more and more IPP aggregate formation. So it really becomes this vicious feed forward cycle. Heather, this brings yeah. to mind, you know, right away, this sort of amyloid plaque context in the brain. Um, mm -hmm. Can you just comment here or maybe, I don't know if you're going to talk about it later, like what are, you know, what's the Venn diagram? Can you compare, contrast? Yeah, yeah. So amyloid plaques in the brain are formed by another aggregating protein, uh, amyloid beta, and it's actually incredibly similar. So the uh, essentially innate immune cells of the brain, the microglia, do the very same thing in response to A-beta aggregates. And a lot of what we know about uh, IPP aggregates actually was hinted at from earlier research in Alzheimer's. Um, so this, again, drives this inflammatory cycle and hurts, in the end, um, the, the neurons mm -hmm. in Alzheimer's. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So very similar cycle. Of destruction. Um, yeah, of absolute destruction. Yeah. The nasty, nasty thing. Yep. Um, and so work by us and others really dove in to establish how macrophages sense IPP aggregates and uh, found that it can do that IPP can basically activate the macrophages in two ways. So one, IPP uh, aggregates are sensed by toll-like receptors on the cell surface, and this induces the expression of many pro-inflammatory uh, cytokine genes and, and uh, chemokine genes as well. But in addition, the actual phagocytosis of IPP aggregates drives IL-1 beta secretion specifically. So IPP aggregates are phagocytosed. These within the phagolysosomal system actually disrupt the membranes of the phagolysosomes. And this in itself activates the NLRP3 inflammasome and is what uh, starts cranking out IL-1 beta in response. So all this very focused on type two diabetes. This is where I finally get to type one diabetes. So thanks for bearing with me. So. For a long time, we thought that islet amyloid was a specific pathology of type 2 diabetes, and we didn't bother really thinking about it in the context of type 1 diabetes. But several recent studies have highlighted that islet amyloid is actually present in the islets of people living with type 1 diabetes. And so this has only been shown now in a small number of people. We don't know yet how prevalent islet amyloid is in type 1 diabetes, and we certainly don't know what role it's playing. But it's been an interesting discovery that it's actually there within the islets. Um, can you just comment, is it present in the prodrome um, once people are uh, exhibiting the IAPP autoantibody, or is that not even known yet? So I would say that it's not known yet. 
Um, we don't know if it's present in people that have just, uh, yeah, antibody positive, but not diabetes. So TBD. Yeah. It's exciting times. Yeah. Yeah. Very. So, um, for part of my JDRF funded work, I wanted to figure out, okay, what is islet amyloid doing in the context of type one diabetes? And so we used the nod mouse model of type one diabetes to do this. We took our human IPP transgenic mice and we back crossed them to nod uh, mice for greater than 10 generations and confirmed uh, full back crossing by SNP analysis. So we really generated essentially wild type mice. They don't express human IPP, wild type nod mice um, and littermate controls and then nod mice that express the human IPP transgene. These mice, just like on other strains, develop islet amyloid. So to variable extents, you can kind of see the different levels of islet amyloid we see across islets, even from within the same mouse. So we see some islets that have lots of islet amyloid. We see some islets that have a little bit of islet amyloid and some that have very little or none. And given everything we know about islet amyloid, we assumed, of course, this is gonna accelerate diabetes and make it worse. But we were completely floored to see that it in fact did the opposite. So in purple, the nod mice expressing the human form of IPP and developing islet amyloid were actually dramatically protected from diabetes. So they had delayed diabetes onset and reduced overall diabetes incidence. So we were really shocked to see that. And we thought, okay, this is really interesting, but we need to make sure this isn't just some weird thing going on with these transgenic mice. So two caveats of this model, one, human IPP in this model is highly overexpressed. So it's, it's a super physiological level of IPP. Um, and that's because it's driven by the uh, RIP insulin promoter. Um, and secondly, maybe the transgene insertion is disrupting some key diabetes risk loci in that region of the transgene. And so we wanted to test this using uh, independent model of islet amyloid formation. And so here we used previously established human IPP knock-in mice. So these mice express the human IPP coding sequence under control of the endogenous mouse IPP locus. So this does two things, really it returns human IPP expression levels back to a physiological level. But in addition, because now it's knocked into the endogenous locus, it's actually on a totally different chromosome, chromosome six, than where the transgene is inserted on chromosome 15. So we're changing where the, the gene has been disrupted. And so we generated uh, mice that have two copies of human IPP shown as IPPHH and compared these to heterozygotes and mice that are wild type. Again, we saw the same thing. So mice that have two copies of the human form of IPP were had uh, uh, later diabetes onset and less diabetes incidence. And so we wanted to try and figure out what is going on here. You know, IPP is the super inflammatory factor. And why are we seeing a protection from diabetes, the complete opposite of what we, we thought? So we zoomed in on the immune cells present within islets. And we wanted to see how these are reacting to IPP aggregates. So we took human IPP transgenic and wild type mouse islets. We fact sorted them to enrich specifically for the immune cells. So this is prior to diabetes development. Normally the immune cells 
of the islet uh, comprise about 1% of total cells, so they're very rare. And the vast majority of cells within islets are non-immune cells, they're CD45 negative. So we sorted out just the very few 1% of CD45 positive cells, and then we reconstituted samples to enrich for the immune component, and then also keep in some of the non-immune components. So mostly this would be the endocrine cells. And then we subjected these to single cell RNA sequencing. And so we saw lots of interesting thing from, things from these data. Um, so this is a UMAP plot of the single cell sequencing data here. In this circle is basically all of the immune cells. So we see minor populations of T and B cells, which we've previously shown are present even in the absence of diabetes as a minor immune population of islets. And we saw lots and lots of different clusters of macrophages, all denoted here with Ms. And then of course you can see the uh, endocrine cells as well and the endothelia cells. These artificially look like a minority of cells um, because we've enriched for the immune component. And so normally this immune population would be a tiny blip on a single cell sequencing uh, data set because there's so few if you're looking at the whole islet. So now by enriching for them, we're able to see and resolve lots of different interesting clusters here. And so there's multiple different macrophage populations present in the islets. Some express high levels of IL-1 beta, so they're more pro-inflammatory. Others are expressing IGF-1, which we've previously shown as a marker of uh, a regenerative phenotype of macrophages, macrophages that really support beta cell health. And we also saw a discrete population of macrophages expressing high levels of HMOX. This is an, a gene involved in heme metabolism, but has also been identified to mark very inflammatory macrophages that are present in atherosclerotic plaques. So lots of different interesting macrophage populations here, but a key surprising thing that we found was that across all of the macrophage populations, one thing that was in common was the most downregulated pathway in the macrophages was actually MHC class two antigen presentation. So this was downregulated across all of the macrophage populations and the most downregulated pathway. And so what is MHC class two? It is critical for the presentation of antigens to CD4 T cells, so T helper cells. And particularly the antigens it presents tend to be extracellular antigens. So MHC class two is primarily expressed on professional antigen presenting cells, macrophages and dendritic cells. And these cells take up exogenous antigen proteins, process them into peptides, load them onto MHC class two, and this gets presented on the cell surface to activate CD4 T cells. And so looking at the whole islet lysates from our nod mice, again, across the board, we saw decreases in multiple factors in MHC class two uh, antigen presentation. In addition to that, we also saw decreases in important co-stimulatory molecules. So these are molecules that when antigen is presented to T cells, they provide further instructions to T cells to activate them. And these were decreased as well. And so we wanted to see if this was maybe a direct effect of IPP aggregates on antigen presenting cells. So ex vivo, we took bone marrow derived dendritic cells, which are really good antigen presenters. And in culture, we just exposed them to 
uh, synthetic IPP, either human IPP that will form aggregates in vitro or rodent IPP, which won't aggregate. And we matured them with LPS to activate them. And indeed, what we saw was that in the presence of human IPPs, so the IPP aggregates, there was a decrease in cells that had very high levels of expression of MHC class two. So these were uh, diminished in HIPP treated cells. Uh, but still maintained if cells were exposed to rodent IPP. So really, again, a function of IPP aggregates specifically. We then wanted to look at what IPP aggregates were doing to uh, the antigen-presenting cells' ability to present antigen to T cells. So we took BMDCs, bone marrow-derived dendritic cells. We again treated them overnight with synthetic human IPP or just buffer control. And then we loaded the BMDCs with OVA peptide, which is presented as antigen and can be re, uh, recognized by OVA-specific CD4 T cells. And we looked at how much these CD4 T cells proliferate in response to this antigen presentation. And so here on the y-axis is the amount of T cell proliferation. So if the T cells don't see their antigen, their OVA antigen, there's no proliferation. When OVA is loaded onto the BMDCs, then the T cells proliferate robustly. And if we simply pre-treat the BMDCs with human IPP, this is really robustly shut down. Wow. And that, that, yeah. that's very, that's very marked. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's pretty, pretty strong, strong effect. And we were kind of surprised because we had just done so much with, um, you know, macrophages and dendritic cells with human IPP in vitro. And we had just never thought to look specifically at antigen uh, presentation. You know, we, yeah, no, the cells are pumping out tons of IL-1 beta. Yeah. Know that, this experiment but, really is a test drive. It yeah. shows, it shows what happens. I mean, it's really elegant. It's nice. Thank you. Um, so then we wanted to dive into the mechanism a little bit further so we looked at whether rodent IPP does this. It does not. So it looks just like as if the cells had not been, uh, had just, just had antigen. Um, and then we also did an experiment where we co-treated with human IPP and a phagocytosis blocker at the same time. We wanted to see if blocking phagocytosis of the IPP aggregates would prevent this effect. And indeed it did. So here we saw actually a less dramatic reduction in antigen presentation. Our conditions were slightly different and our IPP treatment was shorter, but we saw sort of the reduction of antigen presentation with human IPP. But if the cells were treated with human IPP and a phagocytosis blocker, this effect was reversed. So really showing that it's the phago, the uptake of IPP aggregates within the antigen presenting cells that is doing this. And so with that, um, I'll, I'll leave it there in terms of data, and I'll summarize with sort of the working, our current working model. So we think that phagocytosis of islet amyloid by the cell, the resident islet immune cells, namely macrophages within the islets, it both induces inflammation, but at the same time, it disrupts MHC class two antigen presentation. And we think this is through the same pathway. So that same uptake of IPP aggregates that drives activation of the NLRP3 inflammasome is also that same pathway that MHC class two antigen presentation relies upon. So we think this very same pathway that induces inflammation is actually impairing the antigen presentation abilities of these cells. 
And so in summary, I've shown that IPP aggregates are highly inflammatory. They're phagocytosed by islet macrophages. And the inflammatory response is really IL-1 beta and NLRP3 inflammasome dependent and drives beta cell dysfunction. At the same time, and we were really surprised by this, islet amyloid delays diabetes in nod mice. It seems to be protective. IPP aggregates, we think, do this by disrupting MHC class 2 antigen presenting pathways. And this impairs antigen presentation to the T helper cells and is again phagocytosis dependent. And so where this leaves us is there seems to be this, these two opposing actions of islet amyloid on the immune system. In the absence of autoimmunity, the inflammatory action of islet amyloid really tips the scale towards beta cell dysfunction and diabetes. This would be like in the case of type 2 diabetes. But it seems that in the context of autoimmunity, because there is this impaired antigen presentation, this effect of IPP really becomes much more critical and maybe tips the scale in terms of protection from diabetes. And so the big questions we're left with that we, that we haven't answered yet is, well, which side actually wins, both in the context of, of course, real type 1 diabetes. This is all based on nod mice. And also for beta cell replacement therapy, because we know um, beta cell transplants also tend to develop lots of islet amyloids. So what is it doing in that context? Yeah. And so, uh, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. This thank is you. Talk. Thanks. Um, so yeah, I, I'd like to thank just all the members past and present of Bruce Bershare's lab. And of course, Bruce Bershare, he's a fantastic uh, mentor. And many people have contributed to this work. I'd also like to thank the JDRF who supported this work through an advanced postdoctoral fellowship. And just uh, Monica had already mentioned this, what I'm currently doing. So I recently uh, joined full-time uh, in an industry position at Integrated Nanotherapeutics. This is a Vancouver uh, biotech startup. I actually co-founded it with Bruce Verscher along with uh, Peter Cullis and um, some other members uh, from UBC. And so we're, our goal is to target antigen presenting cells with lipid nanoparticles to develop therapeutics that can induce immune tolerance. And I uh, really hope to come back here and share the exciting work we're doing on uh, type one diabetes specifically with lipid nanoparticles. So yeah. Thank you. thank you very much. Yeah. That's really exciting work with the, your industry partner there, or, you know, integrated nanotherapeutics, because as you mentioned, this could have purchased both on those who are on their way to type one diabetes um, in the prodrome, maybe bringing them back into remission, but also it, it, in those that receive the islet transplant. So really a, a far reaching technology if uh, you guys can, you know, get it, uh, get it to go. It's really Yeah. Exciting. Yeah. That's the hope. And uh, lots of people are working on this now, especially with lipid nanoparticles being, you know, tested so widely in the, the mRNA COVID vaccines. So we yes. know that they are very good at targeting antigen presenting cells and modulating immune responses. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. Um, I wanted to open it up to other people. We have a few more minutes. Uh, we have a large audience, so I'd love to have people ask some questions. Um, yeah, I, I just wanted to go back to, you know, this whole idea of um, the IA, you know, uh, PP autoantibody. Uh, is, is there any work that demonstrates that that is, you know, I mean, a lot of people talk about endotypes, but it, that, that that may be a specific route to type one versus mm. other routes. 
you know, and so would that be, you know, would this approach be very specific to that endotype or to those people, or could it have a larger generalized, um, you know, approach? What do you think? So targeting, targeting eyelid amyloid specifically. Yeah. 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 Um, My hunch is that it's going to be more of an endotype thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because I think if it was highly prevalent in type one diabetes, we probably would have noticed it earlier. Um, but of course we don't know. I mean, there's other really interesting work. So IP kind of has all this, these interesting links to type one diabetes pathology. So it's also an important autoantigen when it forms a hybrid peptide with, uh, chromogranin A. So Mm -hmm. Katie Haskin and Haskins, uh, group has shown that and Tom DeLong, Robert Baker. So, uh, it has sort of these autoantigen activities, um, and yeah, and now this kind of eyelid amyloid story, but, but I suspect it's going to be a specific sort of subset of people that would benefit from some sort of potentially eyelid amyloid targeting. I don't think it's going to be, uh, you know, a silver bullet, if you right. will, for sure, uh, for type one diabetes therapeutics. I mean, we are hearing over and over again that there's, you know, it's probably going to be a combinatorial therapy, um, you know, for, for any given patient and then perhaps across the board, more personalized medicine, but, you know, be that as it may, um, whatever it takes, you know, to really sort of like get, um, get less people progressing to type one. And then for those who are to get, you know, some kind of recovery, whether it's coming back, uh, with their own, you know, from their using their own systemic, uh, um, resources or with the islet transplantation, uh, let's see. I'm interested in, oh, here's from Tiffany Richardson. Uh, great talk. I'm interested in how your work may integrate with vascular dysfunction in T1D islets, given that amyloid is often localized to the vessels and islets. Mm, yeah, that's a, that's a great function too. A uh, great question too. So um, yeah, certainly any sort of uh, disruption in the islet vasculature probably leads to increased islet amyloid um, and could definitely worsen things. Um, so I definitely think, and we know that, um, you know, the endothelial cells can also be critical uh, contributors to inflammatory cytokine production. And that these are kind of, they're always in very close association with islet amyloid. So within the islet. So I definitely think there's, there's a key relationship there as well. Okay, last call for questions. A lot of people, but no, no questions. <laughs> That's okay. You can always uh, reach out to me on Twitter or, or email if you want to follow up. Well, thank you again for joining us. And um, a big shout out to your group at UBC, as well as at Integrated Nanotherapeutics. Uh, we wish you the best of luck in that pursuit. And it looks like very promising and very interesting. So thanks again for sharing your work and um, have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Thanks so much, Monica.